Well, it is a, uh, a joy and privilege to be here with you all. Uh, you came to our territory, and so uh, it's great to be able to, uh, this is the pulpit I normally preach from, and yet here I'm able to uh, share this time with you and minister with you all, and uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. You know, we at Foothill, we love Summit. Uh, we have ever since the initial team left from here and uh, headed out to the far reaches of Fontana to, uh, to plant a church out there, and uh, we, we are regularly praying for you, and we will continue to do so, uh, especially as you're in this time of transition. We, uh, our hearts are big for you, that God would, would use you as a body of believers in a mighty way, and uh, you know, in these days, friends of the gospel are, are, are few. And so it's, it's such a joy to know that there's a body of like-minded, uh, gospel-loving Christians not too far away, and we are united in Christ, um, seeking to win the lost, to disciple the saints. And uh, so I pray that the uh, Lord continues to strengthen you all in the days ahead, and it's a, the privilege to bring God's Word to you uh, this afternoon. Um, and so as we open the Word of God, let's pray together. Our God and Father, we ask as we open your word now that you would please guide us according to your spirit. Please open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things that are in your word. We recognize there are many distractions, many things in our own hearts that can keep us from hearing your truth. And so we ask that your spirit would supernaturally break through those, Father, that your word might penetrate our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can begin by opening up your personal copy of God's Word to uh, 1 John chapter 4, the book of 1 John chapter 4. Now, I want you to imagine as we begin uh, that you go, you're going over to your friend's house, maybe for dinner, and you happen to notice that they have a, uh, a new weather vane on the top of their house. Now, some of you may be wondering what a weather vane is. Uh, but those things that move around with the wind, and uh, they can be all different, different uh, shapes and sizes and whatnot. But you look up on the weather vane, and it says, God is love on the weather vane. And you go, huh, that's interesting. And you kind of go, okay, what, what, did, what did my friend mean by this fact that they have a weather vane that says, God is love that's moving all around with the wind? Well, the famous London preacher Charles Spurgeon had just a, such an incident he was visiting a friend who had a new barn, and this weather vane that said God is love was up on the top. Spurgeon asked his friend, he says, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God's love is as changeable as the wind? His friend answered, no. I believe that God is love whichever way the wind blows. You see, what Spurgeon expressed is what our emotions tell us, that God's love might change with the changing circumstances. But what the friend intended by this weather vane was what the Word of God reminds us of, that God's love is unchanging no matter the circumstances. Because you see, it's easy for us to lose sight of love. It's easy for us to forget that we are loved. I mean, think about children. Children are loved so much from the time they're young all the way through, and even those who have left the house are loved so dearly by their parents. And yet, hone in on your typical teenager and um, they forget all that their parents have provided, all that they've sacrificed for, and they can tend to think that their parents 
don't love them if they don't let them do what they want to do with their friends. But the reality is, the same is true for Christians. We can lose sight of God's love for us. Oh, sure, if we were given a questionnaire, do you believe that God loves you? We'd say yes, because the Bible says that. But when it comes down to how we really feel and what we're thinking in those small moments of our day, we can easily wonder if God has forgotten about us. But this really only becomes a problem if we've forgotten what God has said in his word, because his word is very clear of his love for us. And so we need to return again and again to the scriptures to remind our souls that indeed God loves his children. And one place where God declares that love is in 1 John 4.10. And that we're going to focus on that one verse this afternoon. 1 John 4.10. So follow along as I read that verse. It says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this one verse, we're going to see three movements of the love of God toward us. Three movements of the love of God toward us so that we would be able to stand back in awe of his love. The first movement we see in this verse is we must behold God's initiative towards us. Behold God's initiative towards us. The verse begins... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Here he begins, he says, in this is love, not in anything else, but in this. And here he's further defining what love looks like as John has been describing in this paragraph. Starting in verse 7, the apostle John has made a plea for Christians to love one another. He then gives reasons why Christians should love one another. The first is found in, in 7 and 8 that our, our, the, our love to one another shows that we have been born of God and that we know God. We truly know the living God if we love one another. Secondly, in 9 and 10 here, he says that we should love one another because that's in, found in the character of God and the action of God in the gospel. Is that by God's action toward us, he's enabled us to be able to love. In verse 11, he then gives a third and final reason we must pass on what has been given to us. And so as we come to verse 10, we see God's love towards us in full display. In this is love, not in anything else. And yet our world is so confused about love, right? You turn on any sort of media or entertainment, whether it be songs, whether it be shows, movies, books, and you read, you see the word love everywhere. You think that we're obsessed with love, and yet we really have no idea what love is. We have entertainment that glorifies infidelity to another person out of supposed love for somebody else. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, love is love, which is essentially just a way to say, I can do whatever I want, and I can call it love. Whatever I want to do is legitimate. Or I uh, read this week a marriage survey of those, uh, those surveyed. 77% said that they were in the marriage so long as the love lasts within the marriage. The love lasts, which is just a sign that they see love as a fleeting feeling that may be here today but may be gone tomorrow. We really have no idea 
what love is. And so we must ask the question, by what standard is love defined? How do we know in this universe what is truly love? Can it be whatever I want it to be? Because, you see, humanity has no answer of its own. The evolutionary worldview that our culture tries to continually cram down our throats utterly fails to explain love. What it is, why we even love in the first place, and what defines it. Because, you see, if we're evolved from these simple organisms some however long ago, and we only are here, we're only surviving because we've taken our own interests into, into, into heart, and we've, we're the stronger ones, there's nothing inherent in that worldview that can understand love. It's all about self-interest. There's no sacrifice towards anybody else. But see, contrary to that, the biblical worldview begins with a benevolent creator who made us in his image. And who is this creator? Who is the God who defined love? Look at verse 8 in this same chapter, a couple verses up. John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The God of the Bible is the one who defines what love is. He is the one who has defined it. His character, his action, his will is what sets the boundaries of this love. Because you see, God is love because God is three persons. There's one God who exists in three persons, which is the orthodox understanding of what the Bible teaches about God. And therefore, as three persons, they show love within a loving community. Because, you see, if God was just a single person, then love would not be inherent to who He is. That means that in eternity past, there would be a single person, God, and He would have no other person to express the love to. And so, therefore, love could not be inherent, essential to His nature, and He'd be lacking. He wouldn't be able to have love. This is a problem, by the way, philosophically with Islam's God, a, a unipersonal God. But see, the Christian God is totally different. There's a basis for love because of the triune nature. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and Son love the Spirit, and they serve one another. They're a community of love, and they're the models and the definition of all our love. And so what does then God's love look like? We have part of our answer here in verse 10. It's like a condensed form of the Bible's message of love right here. As we said, love is not just a warm feeling that comes and goes. Love is an action. It's not just a function of our heart, but a function of our will that we're going to do something. But in the beginning here, to describe God's love, he sets the record straight about where this love originated. Did we reach out to God? Did our, did, our love, did our love start this whole chain, or was it God's? John makes it clear. He says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. You see, before we can appreciate the love of God for us, we need to come to grips with the fact that on our own, we don't love God. Left up to ourselves, without the sovereign grace of God in our lives, we would have nothing to do with God. We wouldn't reach out to Him. We wouldn't consider all the options and think that, that He was the best choice. John says that we did not love God, but that God loves the undeserving. And this is what the rest of the Bible clearly affirms. You look at God's love for Israel. 
In fact, turn there with me to Deuteronomy. We're going to flip back to our Old Testament here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Whenever God has reached out in love to his chosen people, it has been a gracious love. A love in which it was not earned, was not deserved, and yet he chose to do so. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're just going to look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord says to Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look at verse 9 as well. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You see, God loved not because Israel had anything beautiful or anything worthy of his love. They were not the greatest, not the most majestic. In fact, he reminds them, you were actually kind of the, the worst. You were the You were the fewest, the the puniest ones over there in the corner, and I decided to love you. We see this in John 15, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, reminding his disciples that his love for them was started with his own initiative. And we see this also in the gospel, reiterated in in Romans chapter 5, where it says that that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God, God in Christ did not, did not reach out to save us when we were already his friends. We were his enemies. And that's when God chose to demonstrate his love for us. That's when he reached out to the undeserving. God did not wait around for us to get our act together. Just think of, think if that were the case. You have to wait for all of eternity, right? We would not get our act together on our own. He came determined to place His love upon us, even in our despicable state. This love is totally and completely undeserved. You need to be reminded that you did not earn the love of God. There was not a certain amount of decisions that you made that made God turn towards you. There was not a certain family that you were born into that caused God to turn towards you. It is simply in His sovereign grace He saw you in your sin and chose to love you. It's clear from the Bible that not only did we not love God, we could not have loved God. You see, you could read John's comments in 1 John 4.10 and say, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And you think, well, John, maybe with another group of people. They they loved God, but, but maybe you can speak for yourselves and you didn't quite love God. Well, no, that's not true for humanity. We all are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 clearly states. We were children of wrath. Jesus said to the the people of his day, I know you do not have the love of God within you. And this is the truth of human nature. We read it earlier from Romans chapter 3, right? No one is righteous, no, not one. There's no wiggle room there. There's no middle ground. Everybody stands condemned under the words of Scripture. 
And that's a bleak picture, and it's depressing if we do not have the gospel, right? Therefore, if God did not initiate initiate his love towards you, you would still be without God and without hope. And so this afternoon, I challenge you, think about God's love. Think about his gracious love for you. Think about his initiative in reaching out to you when you had done nothing to deserve that. Think on the fact that he moved towards you and said, I love you, when there was nothing lovely in you. That if you had looked at yourself through the eyes that he sees, you would have been repulsed by what you see. But he loved you before you were born. He loved you even when you were a lost sinner, an enemy of him. See, we behold such love such undeserved, gracious love. It should humble us, humble us to realize that that we did nothing to contribute to this, that this is love, not that we have loved God, that we were in a state of not loving God when he decided to reach out to us. And so this should move us towards, as we see the love of God, it should move us more towards God. It should inflame our hearts with love for the Father who who would show us such magnanimous love. So first in this text, we need to behold God's initiative towards us. The second thing that we need to do is behold God's generosity to us. First, God's initiative. Secondly, God's generosity. John continues to define love. And it's like a gift that he continues to unwrap. He's taken off the wrapping paper, and now he's got to open the Amazon box to see what's inside, right? He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what God did. He loved us. He didn't just have a warm feeling about us or for us. God loved us so that he sent his son. He acted on our behalf. You see, God's love and God's sending are not two different things, but rather God's sending of the son is the full demonstration of his love. In the sending of Jesus Christ, his Son, who existed for all eternity, past in perfect union with the Father and Spirit, he took on human flesh to save mankind. John Calvin, the theologian of the Reformation, said this. He said, it was then from God's goodness alone, as from a fountain, that Christ, with all his blessings, has come to us. Jesus Christ coming as the Son of the living God, coming to walk upon this earth, was God's gift of His goodness. This reality shows that God did not hold anything back in His giving on our behalf. When we talk about God's generosity in the gospel, we're not just saying that God was kind of a nice guy who gave us some nice things and makes us, gives us a little smile. No, we're saying that God gave completely and utterly sacrificially. He wowed with his generosity. He's not just like a billionaire who decided to give a couple thousand people some hundred dollar bills. And you go, well, it's kind of a nice guy. He's given some money away. No, God gave of himself. He gave his only beloved son. 
You see, God's generosity is unmatched and unparalleled. There's no human illustration that can even come close to describing how great his love and how great the gift that he gave when he sent his beloved son. God's giving of his son is the huge billboard across all time and all history that God loves his people. And it's a sign, it's a billboard that we can't miss. We need not look anywhere else for assurance of God's love but to Jesus. John Calvin again says, when a real and full certainty of divine love towards us is sought for, we must look nowhere else but to Christ. You want to know that God loves you? You need to look nowhere else but to Jesus. Jesus is where we see the love of God encapsulated and and fully displayed for us. But isn't it easy for us to forget that love? As we talked about earlier, it's easy to, to forget The fact that God loves us so greatly. The clear sight of his love gets clouded by the concerns of life. It's like driving in a storm, right, where it's just pelting rain. And and you can't see see anything. And you're just holding on and trying to get through, but but you can miss stuff. One time I was driving home from college. I was going uh, to college here in Southern California and lived up in the Northwest in Washington State. And I, it was Thanksgiving or something, I'm driving up, it's late, it's dark, and I get over the grapevine and I hit the valley there, and it is thick, thick fog. And so I'm there trying to, it wasn't until an hour or two later I realized I was on a different freeway than I, I was on the 99, not the 5. <laughs> it's like, well, at least it's all going north, so I should be okay. But um, it's easy to miss things as our vision gets clouded. And so it's true in life. And maybe even it's true for you today. Life is crazy right now. We each are having to ask questions, to give answers, and to deal with things that we never realized we'd have to do do when we started 2020. And in the midst of all of that, it's easy to forget about the love of God for us. For some, it's the pain of physical suffering. Whether it's something new that they're wrestling with or or whether it's something that, some chronic pain they've had for a long time. It can cloud our vision of Christ. For others, it might be the pain of broken relationships that are suddenly crashed onto the scene and have left your heart in a wreck. For still others, there's just stress and the combined pressures of life that seem like a burden that looms too large. And we then can be totally forgetful of Christ's love. But I think another way that we can lose sight of the love of God in Christ is by slipping into the view of the Christian life that's legalistic. Now, we all are hardy, oh, don't be legalistic. We, we're hard on the legalism police. You know, we, we can sniff it out as soon as we see it, at least when it's applied to us. But we can subtly begin thinking that God's love for us depends upon our performance, depends upon what we do in the Christian life, that God is happy with me when I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm giving, and I'm doing evangelism, and oh, God, I must be getting the gold star from God. God loves me. Let's look at all I'm doing. And then likewise, 
on our worst days, and we've, we, we, all we're seen is our own sin and our disobedience and our coldness of heart for God, and we, forget, we haven't read our Bible in a week, and we've, 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 we, we neglected that evangelism opportunity with the guy at work, and all these things start stacking up, and pretty soon we feel like we're just neglected by God because we're having to sit in the corner because we're not being the great Christian that God wants us to be. And certainly we should be concerned about being obedient and following the Word of God, but we cannot let that change our view of God's love for us. Because listen, God's love for you is not dependent upon your performance. It is completely dependent on what Jesus did. That is what defines God's love for you. In this is love. Not that you loved God now, back then, or in the future, but that God loved you and sent his son. That is where we look for the love of Christ. The love of God in Christ is like a lighthouse that no matter where you go, no matter what storm you're in, you can always see that beacon shining brightly. We simply need to go back to the Word of God and see it shining there, even when we feel like we haven't seen it. Maybe because we're looking the wrong way, we need to turn around and look at the right way and look to Christ and see that beacon yet again. We cannot lose sight of the love of God expressed in the generous giving of His Son. And we can know that this is the greatest gift he could have ever given. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, God is not holding anything back from you. God is not stingy on his love. He's not stingy on his grace. And yet we can tend to think that because we're not getting what we want God to give us. But that's where we're setting parameters and definitions of what we think God should do for us rather than trusting God to give us all that we need. So this text first calls us to behold God's initiative towards us. Secondly, to behold God's generosity to us. And third and finally, to behold God's salvation of us. God's salvation of us. You see, the sending of God's Son was significant, not just because he left the comforts of heaven to experience life here on earth, but that he came to die for his enemies. It's preeminently in the cross of Jesus that this love is displayed. In other words, even though the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh, is significant and is huge, the climax of God's love is not just in the incarnation, as it is in the atonement, as it is in the cross. We know this because of what John says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's been much debate over the years over the meaning of the word propitiation, one of those words we all kind of stumble over and hope we don't have to say again. Um, and, uh, and there's some that even, uh, ha- some translations that don't even have the word propitiation in there. But the meaning of this word that in the original language of this text is Greek is very clear. And we get it, it's clear theologically from the Old and the New Testaments. Now it's been claimed that this word, the Greek word helosmos, means expiation instead of propitiation. Expiation referring to like a, a wiping away of sin. 
Um, and in fact, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, translates it this way. And while this word can carry those connotations at times, it primarily refers to a propitiating or satisfying the wrath of God. This is the way the word is used in, uh, this Greek word is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, and other Greek literature as well as throughout the New Testament. Therefore, to say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it is saying that he is the one who died to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, this is not the first time that John has used this word in this epistle. So let's look back two chapters to chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to see its first occurrence. 1 John chapter 2. We get a little more explanation. John writes in 1 John 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John points his readers to Jesus as the answer to their sins. Notice he says he's writing to them that they would not sin. That's his desire, and that is the desire of all believers is that we don't want to sin anymore. And it's the desire of all, of all pastors. They don't want to see their people sin anymore. But John, as well as us, live in the real world, and we recognize that there is sin, right? So he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, understanding, and I know you all do, you could put there uh, in parentheses, he understands that people will. What's the answer? Because they do sin, then what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But why do we need an advocate? Why, why, do we, why can't we just walk before the Father? Well, it's because we've displeased the Father. It's because our sin has turned the displeasure of the Father against us. And we need someone to turn that displeasure, to turn that wrath away we need someone to deal with that wrath because it's, it's real. And so John says that Jesus is the only one that can do that for us. Only Jesus can stand in between us and the Father and turn that wrath away. Only he is the advocate because it's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who then, we know, goes to the cross and makes propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the wrath that was directed towards your sins and mine. John chapter 3, the, the gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, this is the truth, that for all those who do not repent, of their sin, the wrath of God remains upon them. God's righteous anger for our sin. This shows that our greatest need and our greatest problem is the sin that stands between us and our Creator. This is the greatest problem, the greatest issue for all humanity. There's many who would like to say that humanity's greatest problem is something else. And in fact, it's crashed onto our news feeds and 
our social media feeds in this day and time. Everyone trying to say what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with our country, what's wrong with society. Many that say, it's not God's wrath isn't our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is, is systemic injustice or racism or ecological destruction. And while these problems are issues in their own right, they are not the ultimate problem. These all problems are horizontal issues between people. But the greatest problem is vertical. The greatest problem for every single person on this planet is between them and the Lord. And that's got to be dealt with first before there can be any sort of resolution on the horizontal level. And that's what John's language here tells us. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, it could have said... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent His Son to be an example for us. And there's some that would like to argue that that's why Jesus came, was simply to be a moral example for you and I to follow. But that's not what John says. He says that God loved us, so He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His Son to the cross to show His love. Now, there's some that would like to say this idea that God's wrath is over us and, and Jesus satisfies that wrath, that this idea of propitiation is, was invented sometime in the Middle Ages. But that position is untenable because this is really what we see all throughout Scripture, is that mankind is sinful and we need a substitute, we need someone to take our place, particularly we need blood to be spilled in order for mankind to be forgiven. And again, we see this throughout the pages of the Bible, I mean, if even we go back to the very first sinners, our parents, Adam and Eve, and they sin in the garden, God expresses the curses over them, and then we read about God killing animals and creating skins that then Adam and Eve could be clothed in. This is the, the first illustration of God slaughtering an animal so that Adam and Eve could be covered. Or think about the Passover lamb described in Exodus chapter 12 where a Passover lamb was slaughtered in the place of the firstborn in the family. Israel was a, a, a sinful nation. Yes, they were God's chosen people there in Egypt, and God was placing his love upon them, but as we already read in Deuteronomy, it wasn't because they were extra special or extra righteous that God loved them. They were actually the small puny nation in the corner, and God still chose to love them. And in fact, Ezekiel chapter 20 uh, describes Israel as idolatrous as Egypt. It says that they were worshiping the idols of Egypt right along with Egypt. They needed redemption. The Passover lamb described that. Obviously, as Jesus, the story of Jesus, Jesus Christ comes in the New Testament, we read his story in the four Gospels, the Gospels writers understood that Jesus was, was that Passover lamb that was being slaughtered, not, uh, not just a temporary slaughtering, but a, a permanent one, once and for all. That's why Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb. Jesus took the place for us. Or think of Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement. This time that Israel needed to approach God, and once a year this, this ritual was performed where one 
goat was slaughtered and one live goat was sent off into the wilderness carrying the sins of Israel out and away from the people, signifying the goat was a substitute for Israel. The whole sacrificial system, as they had to bring animals to be killed and put upon the altar in the place uh, and to receive forgiveness. And of course, we know the great passage in Isaiah 53 that prophesies the coming of the Messiah who would take the place of his people. And this passage was picked up all over the New Testament to say this is what Jesus did. Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins. Friends, we must look to the cross of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great preacher, said, if we would live aright, we must contemplate the cross of Christ. We, in other words, we're not going to get it right. We're not going to live Christianly in this world. We're not going to glorify God with our lives if we're not regularly going back and gazing upon the cross and remembering of God's love for us. And that's exactly what John is reminding his readers here in 1 John chapter 4. That in this is love, in this is love, that God has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God is completely justified in His righteous hatred of sin. We look around at our sins and we, we think of, of God punishing, God having wrath over the nice people around us or at the workplace or whatever, and we have a hard time grappling with that. But it's because we don't see sin as wicked as it is because we don't see God as holy as He is. We have such a low view of God that therefore when there is sin against that God, we don't think of it that big a deal. But if we really had the grand, awesome, ma magnificent view of God that the Scripture portrays, then we would get, get just a, a little glimpse and understanding of what sin is before that holy character. You could maybe think of it, I think of the illustration for us, our, our society understands rage and anger at certain people that commit grievous sins, right? Whether it's murderers, pedophiles, rapists, we, we all understand the rage that we have against such perpetrators. And that kind of full-on righteous indignation just gives us a little glimmer of God's righteous indignation against all sin. And yet, folks, this is the beautiful thing is that as, as Jesus hung upon the cross, God poured out His wrath on His beloved Son. And don't think that He went easy on Him. He had to, he had to take all of the wrath. He had to, to consume every bit of wrath for your sin so that you would not taste any of it. It all went upon his beloved son. Remember, they existed in eternity past in harmony and bliss. And it was wonderful, the most beautiful love you could ever imagine. And yet out of that, God chose to, to work this whole salvation plan that the scriptures reveal. So that Jesus would hang upon the cross. So that pitiful people like you and I would never have to taste the wrath of God that, by the way, you and I totally deserve. The father didn't hold back. He couldn't. It had to be fully paid. Our triune God accomplished our salvation through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, through his resurrection three days later, 
to show his victory over sin and death for all of time. Folks, you needed salvation because of your sins. I needed salvation because of my sins. No human is exempt. All are under sin. All have broken his law. We have rebelled against his lordship, his authority, and his sovereignty. Romans chapter 1 says that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is mankind's fundamental problem. We've rejected God and chosen to worship ourselves. This afternoon, we must clearly see the condemnation from God that our sins have deserved. We must face squarely our guilt before a holy and righteous God. But as we see our sin, and we say, yes, Lord, I am that sinful. Yes, I I, I am that wicked as your word tells me. We don't stay there. We turn and we look to the crucified Son of God who has taken our place, who is the propitiation for our sins. And because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop, we are saved. We never have to experience that wrath again. We are adopted into the family of God. We've been given a new heart with new desires. We're able to love and to serve God. And we're given God's spirit to secure and guarantee our final redemption that that all sin in our lives will be put away with one day. He's in the process of of reforming us, and he will complete that work on the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see God's love for you? That he's been at work through eternity past and here throughout your life, and he's continuing to be committed to you? Behold his salvation for you. His love moved towards you his enemy, when you had done nothing deserving of it, ultimately paying the price so that you might enjoy fellowship with him forever. And so we need to ask ourselves, how can we ever doubt his love? How can we ever think that, oh, maybe God doesn't love me? Maybe he's forgotten about me. We simply need to see that in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, we must have this verse, this text upon our hearts. This is not a once a year thing. This is not a monthly thing, not a weekly thing. This is a daily thing. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Say, soul, you're loved by God today. Don't doubt the love of God. When you're beginning to feel down, Remember that Jesus has paid the price for your sins. Rest in Jesus. That is what faith is, is a full resting in all that Jesus has accomplished. And that's how the faith of the believer is shown day by day as we trust in Jesus each and every day. He he took my sin that I'm going to commit today. Today I'm in Jesus, praise the Lord. He didn't He took it once for all so that every day we can look to him and realize that it's been accomplished. It's been finished at the cross. And if we lose sight of his love, we will spiral out of control in our hearts. We've all been there, right? Where we're 
we're feeling like we're far away from God, we're distant from God because of all, of all of the disobedience and sin that we've done, and we've got to own up to that and confess it. I'm not saying ignore the sin, but confess it, bring it to the cross, and believe wholeheartedly again that Jesus paid for that sin too. That's what the gospel tells us. Let me just say, if you're here this afternoon and you have not repented of your sin, you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, then there is hope for you today. For all who place their faith in Jesus can have their sins forgiven and have eternal life and no longer have the wrath of God resting upon you. That door, that gift is available to you if you would but repent of your sin Renounce your striving against your creator and turn to God who has displayed his love before all of time and all of humanity. You simply need to turn away from your sin, do a 180 and turn towards Christ. Right now, in the quietness of your heart, you can call out to God. Confess your sin. Say, yes, God, I have lived contrary to your word. I have been living my own way. And then tell him that you trust in Christ as your substitute. Believe that Jesus died on the cross, bearing the wrath that your sins deserved. Not somebody else's sins, not sins in general, but your own sins. That is what personal faith in Jesus means. And then through repentance and faith, you'll be saved. The Bible is clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you can go home a forgiven sinner. We all need to look at the billboard of God's love and be reminded that God, for all of time, has set it there and written it in his word that we would not forget his great and magnanimous love for us. So let's not look anywhere else for assurance of God's love. Let's simply look to the cross of Christ, remember what he's done, and Go home as, as happy, justified sinners, recognizing, yes, Lord, I am a great sinner. As John Newton said, the author of Amazing Grace, right? He says, two things I know. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Amen? Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we praise you this afternoon. Thank you that you have not left us without a witness. That Jesus didn't come and die and then you caused the record of that to somehow be lost in the sands of time. But you have preserved your word through these thousands of years. That we today, here in 2020, in this great sophisticated modern world, can realize that our greatest need is, was met. That our greatest sins were dealt with on the cross of Christ. Oh, Father, I ask that you would please help us to not doubt your love for us. Help us to, to reflect upon the cross, to reflect upon Jesus. And may you give us the assurance to know that by trusting in him, we are eternally secure. We know that it is not our grip upon you, but it is your grip upon us that we are securing. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.